This week on Invisibilia, we have the tale of a singer and a journalist who take on terrorism in Somalia with a reality TV show a la American Idol. Can a reality show change reality? Find out on Invisibilia from NPR. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Anita Barrows. Listen to our produced show with her wherever you find your podcasts, and as always, at onbeing.org. Let's say in the course of the conversation, you want to read something then because it's about what we're talking about. You can pull it in or we can just talk for a little while and then maybe have some reading and talk about the readings if that seems right. And just see how it flows because we get to, uh, this is not a live program. I get to edit things and, and, uh, you know, we can stop and move backwards and whatever we need to do. Wonderful. Okay. Will I be able to get a tape of, of the program? Yes, absolutely. Great. You will have Good. a CD. Yeah. Um, Brian is saying that he needs to hear more of your voice. So why don't let's not get into this stuff yet. Tell me just sort of where you've come from today or where you are um, now. Well, I've actually just been at a memorial service for my friend who died mm. um, about 10 days ago. It was a, a memorial at a, uh, it's a very sweet thing. Um, she was a poet and she taught poetry at a local middle school. And I'm actually going to take that over for her mm. um, one morning a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did a beautiful little ceremony for her. We planted a rose. They have, it's, it's sort of nationally known garden. It's the edible garden at Martin Luther King Jr. High. Oh, and, right. Um, Alice, Alice, Alice um, Waters. Waters. Yes. Right, right, uh-huh. exactly. Uh-huh. And so we planted a rose for Judith and um, oh. Some of her kids who had studied poetry with her read some poems, and and um, it was very moving. It was very sweet. There have been other memorials, but this this one was really very special. It's hard for the kids, yeah. though, isn't it? That kind of oh, death. it's very hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very hard. And they were very attached to her mm-hmm. because she worked with them one on one, and um, she was their poetry mentor, which I guess is the title they just gave me this morning. So mm-hmm. I feel very honored to take that on for her and for yeah. the children. Yeah. Um, yeah. And have you been writing poetry for a long time? Oh, forever. I think I wrote my first poem when I was six years old. <laughs> yeah, I remember it. Well, and you home. kept writing, though, you know, because there are I a lot of us writing, who write yeah. poems when we're six, and we give it up at some point. Yeah, yeah. It was, for me, um, a very natural and spontaneous form of expression. I loved to read as a child. I um, grew up in a household of... of um, Oh, it wasn't a terribly happy household. Mm. Um, and so reading for me became an entry into a world that that um, otherwise really wasn't there. I think I was lucky in a strange sense. Um, my mother suffered terribly from depression, and she was... Um, in bed a lot of the time. When I would come home from school, that was where she would be. And for the whole sort of middle part of my childhood, we lived in a part of Brooklyn that was very close to the ocean. It was actually a little peninsula. The bay was on one side and the ocean was on the other. And I would come home from school, um, get my bicycle, and just go riding around. And either I would visit friends or I would go down to the ocean. And, And that was really where I began thinking seriously about poetry that was I would bring a notebook and I would write and and so in a sense what was the tragedy of my childhood became a kind of freedom in a funny way Mm. um, and an opening into something else Mm. well I think we've we're already into it and that's great (laughs) the the topic of this program and that I want to explore with you is the soul in depression, mm-hmm. and um, it it sounds like you depression was an experience sort of on your soul through your mother also growing up. 
Um, yes, very much. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, I didn't know what its name was. Right. Um, and what I was told about my mother being in bed so much was that she had warts on her feet. It was kind of an odd thing <sighs> to have been told. <laughs> and the warts had a wonderful name. They had an Italian name. It was Verucca, uh-huh. um, which to me sounded kind of like a Hebrew prayer, Baruch Adah. And, and so I was sort of fascinated with the word, but I would sit outside my the door to my mother's bedroom and I would hear her crying or 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 just sort of wait for her to wake up and and um, that was very much the experience of my childhood I I remember even a very strong sort of sensation walking through the door we lived in an apartment um, during that middle part of my childhood um, from the time I was about seven to ten and I remember walking through the door and really feeling a change in the atmosphere from the sort of vivid outside world where I loved to be whatever the weather I loved to be outdoors and I would walk inside and I would feel a kind of permeable darkness and that was my mother's depression. That's that's an amazing image. Um, yeah, and I guess what I, what I, you you you're already getting at something that I, that I want to try to sort of bring into the light, which is depression is something many of us have experienced either ourselves or through others, and we we talk about. Um, about it from a medical standpoint and from mm-hmm. a psychological standpoint, but permeable darkness is really uh, is really a good description of of uh, this this the wholeness of that and what yes it, the yes permeable and that I could sort of walk in and out of it myself you right. know and 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 put my hand in it and and feel what it felt like and. Um, I I think that um, you know it was certainly something that my mother lived with all her life, and 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 it's it's a state that's familiar to me as well. Although I I um, have lived it differently from the way my mother did. Was your family religious at all? Um, well, my grandfathers were both rabbis. Um, they were Orthodox rabbis in in the old country. Um, each of them came from a different old country. My mother's <laughs> right. father was from Hungary, um, and my father's father was from Poland, um, the part of Poland that I think traded borders with Lithuania, so it was always one or the other. Um, but um, f- all my grandparents were dead by the time I was six, and so for the first six years of my life, um, we lived a pretty much Orthodox Jewish life. My father's father lived with us in our apartment in Brooklyn. Um, and then after that, the family began sort of drifting. You know, this was the 1950s. I was born in 47. Um, it was the story of many Jewish families. My parents were first generation. Right. Um, and and they began sort of drifting to conservative and kind of quasi-reform Jewish. But, but um, they maintained a very strong identification with their Jewishness. And I grew up um, in in um, pretty much entirely Jewish communities. The, the, the non-Jews were really in the minority. I remember being struck when I was 15 and I went to a camp where there were many non-Jews by the fact that Jews really were a minority. <laughs> <laughs> that was new information. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, well, tell me, uh, do you, are, were you aware of how that religious context, uh, you know, how that was a lens through which your, your mother herself or, or you and your family interpreted her depression, whether it was normal or shameful or, you know, what, what, um, what it meant in terms of God. <laughs> yes, Did you yes. have any sense of that? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, I think there was a shame in it. Um, it was never spoken about. It was always referred to through veils of denial. And my mother was really, I think, I think her capacity for denial was born of desperation. She felt that she was one of God's favorite children and, and that God would 
um, do as anything. a Jew, right? As a Jew, uh-huh. well, as a Jew, but also personally. Okay. Um, in some funny way, I mean, my mother would say things like, "I talk to God. I talk directly to God, and He answers me." And <laughs> and I always sort of had the image when I was a child that <laughs> that God was this, you know, sort of old man, half shaven in a bathrobe, um, <laughs> who had a direct phone line to Sylvia, my mother, um, but. But didn't do very much to help her. Right. <laughs> I, was always, I thought, you know, if she has such a direct line, why doesn't he make her better? Mm. Um, she she wouldn't admit to her depression. I think to her death, which was only six months ago, uh. um, she was ninety. Um, I think to her death, she never admitted that what she was was depressed, um, and she kind of clung to this this benign father god. She was the 12th of 14 children. And I suspect that her relationship with her own parents was very distant. I mean, they were probably exhausted (laughs) by the time they got to her. And the next two were identical twins. (laughs) And then they were really exhausted. (laughs) They were really exhausted. And so I think her connection to this father god was very much about the idealized father that she wished she had. And my connection to this God, which I mentioned in the, the introduction to the, the Rilke book, um, was, was a sort of um, strained one in a way, um, because I, I really, I think from very early on, for whatever reason, I, I had, my eyes were very open to all the suffering around me, my mother's suffering particularly, um, my father was a generous but violent man, and I felt his suffering very strongly. Um, and my vision of this God up in the sky who had a direct line to my mother was that he was lonely. Mm. And it sounded awfully isolated up there. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and, and I felt one day coming home from synagogue, and I mentioned this in the introduction to the Rilke, poems, um, which are so much about the reciprocal relationship between that God and us, I, I had a very strong sense after being in synagogue all morning, coming home and kind of uh, smelling the wonderful autumn leaves um, and kicking them through the gutters um, on Linden Boulevard in Brooklyn, um, I felt that I understood why God had created us. And it was because wherever he was, he felt very alone and he needed us to keep him company. Mm. And I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, some uh, even rabbinic interpretations of Genesis also take that view, right? Yes, yes, exactly. It's also an old theological idea. That we sort of lost. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. That we somehow um, are there as the the eyes and the ears and the voice of of the invisible, and we embody that, and we yes, we're there to to um, to have a dialogue mm-hmm. with God, to be the other end of that dialogue. Yeah. Yes, my my Jewishness was very important to me as a child. I chose at about seven um, to go to Hebrew school. My parents didn't think it was a very important thing for a girl to do, but I begged them to go, and I ended up going to synagogue by myself, actually, um, every Saturday. My father worked on Saturdays. He was building, you know, one of the those businesses in the 1950s that people thought would be their salvation. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and my mother was home depressed or, or, you know, taking care of my younger brother. And so I would walk to synagogue by myself after my grandparents died and we moved from one part of Brooklyn to another. Um, it became very important for me. The music was very important. Mm-hmm. The stained glass windows were very important. The, the sensate aspect of the whole ritual, the service, was very important to me. 
All right. And let's uh, then move forward to you then did you did you leave Judaism behind or did you would you say that you incorporated other traditions with it um now I would say I incorporated other traditions when I was 16 I walked out of the synagogue um because of an encounter um that I had with a rabbi who who um I felt failed me I I had lost my faith and I was desperate to find faith in something and his answers were very um, unsatisfactory mm-hmm. and so I said all right that's it I'm finished um, and and I left for a long time and when I was in my early 30s I had a very strong mystical experience in Assisi and I had studied medieval Italian literature and and um, taught it actually in the building where I'm now in the studio. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. And um, I converted to Catholicism and had always done a sort of Buddhist meditation practice and toward my late 30s became more involved in that. And... It's only been really in the last four or five years that I have reclaimed my Jewishness. And an, an elderly friend of mine asked me a few months ago, so if you had to say which religion you are, what would you say? <laughs> and, and, and I said, you know, I have to say I'm Jewish. I mean, that really is who I am um, in my very deepest soul's resonance despite the Hindu practice, the Sufi practice, the Buddhist practice, the Catholic practice, all of it rolled into one. I'm Jewish. <laughs> do you, do, and have you, have you practiced, do you have some practices from those other traditions as well? I do, I do. I, um, for the last two years, I've been studying classical Indian devotional singing. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a purely mystical um, musical form. And um, I do some Sufi dancing and, and, and I, I love Sufi poetry. Mm. I've taught it in my mystical poetry classes. And, okay. and so, you know, bits and pieces of lots of different things. All right. So this is good. So I get to ask you. Yeah. Now tell me, then you, now from your experience in your family, it might have, it would have been possible that you would have had a genetic predisposition to depression. But when I spoke with you about your experience with depression, it doesn't sound like that's the way it went for you. Uh, um, well, what happened to me was, um, I mean, I think there is a genetic predisposition and from both sides of the family. My mm-hmm. father's sister was hospitalized for many years, actually, with depression. And, and his father had what they called in those days involutional melancholia, um, <laughs> which, again, as a child, I thought was a gorgeous term. And and he was my favorite of all my grandparents because he was very sweet and sad. Um, and I think I've always been drawn to sweet and sad. Um, when I was 17 and I went to college um, early, uh, I had come from sort of a place of, of, you know, big success in high school. Um, and I broke down um, in my freshman year of college. Um, and I think there were probably many causes, um, but I became... Um, very agitated and depressed and just sort of, um, I think, a bit crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I would get on a bus going anywhere and, and get off at the, you know, wherever it ended. And, and I was at a women's college in Massachusetts and I would go all, I, I learned a lot about Massachusetts in those months <laughs> <laughs> because I just went everywhere and, and, and um, that resolved. I mean, I ended up going home because I couldn't stay in school. Um, even though my mind was working, my soul was just in huge turmoil. And home was a terrible place to go, but it was all there was. Mm. Um, and and I sort of pieced myself back together and, and, and with a lot of help. I was always very lucky in that there were people 
who noticed what was going on, people outside my family, old teachers and friends' parents. And, and um, so I came back together really through poetry and music. Um, I had a marvelous ex-teacher who painted my portrait during that time and played the Goldberg variations for me and sent me to a piano teacher in Manhattan. And, and um, it was wonderful, actually. And, and so I was sort of all right, um, but living on some edge until I had my first child, um, which was when I was 31, almost 32. And about six weeks after Nora was born, I crashed completely. Mm -hmm. And this was a very wanted child, and I was so happy to have her. But I completely crashed. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I, I. This week on um, Invisibilia, we have the tale of the was, singer. I felt like I had and a journalist either I, who I, take I, on I terrorism on, in Somalia. You know, extensive amounts of caffeine. Show, it felt like, um, which I was not. Oh God, I can't drink coffee. Or I was in some well of darkness from which I could not emerge, um, and. Meanwhile, I had this baby to take care of, and I was doing a translation for a British publisher. Hmm. Um, and I was trying to to finish a degree in Italian, <laughs> um, and and trying to, you know, sort of seem like I could do all this. Um, but for a year and a half, until finally, um, I. I found a doctor who figured out what was going on with me. Um, it was biochemical. It was me metabolic. I, I um, discovered that I have a chronic autoimmune disease um, of the thyroid gland, oh, which right. was doing this mm -hmm. to me. Um, and God knows, but that my mother had the same thing. Um, <sighs> That's know, a hard we, thought, isn't it? That it? Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, so now when that is the case, does one say that, that your symptoms mimic depression or that it in fact brings on a, a clinical depression? Um, or is that a, an, an irrelevant distinction? Yeah, good, good question. I think where the distinction becomes important is in the treatment. And in my case, I was very, very lucky in that I had a gifted therapist who kept saying, I am convinced that there is a physical basis to what's going on with you. Um, and she kept encouraging me to pursue that. Mm -hmm. And, and um, but I think empirically, it's really the same thing. I mean, I, I have come as a therapist to really um, believe in the non-duality of mind and body. Right. And, and I think that, that, you know, what's cause and what's effect is hard to tell. I think, I think wretched experiences can, can completely um, disorganize a person's biochemistry um, so that the person becomes you know, depressed in a way that might be, you know, only physiologically correctable or, or at least needs to be physiologically as well as psychologically um, worked with. Um, but I also think that there are people who have genetic predispositions, constitutional predispositions toward depression or anxiety or, or, or you know, something <laughs> along those lines. Yeah, and but it, yeah. there's, I mean, I have also struggled with depression, and mine was a, you know, clinical depression, and that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think one thing, uh, I mean, the word depression itself really doesn't do justice, first of right. all, in any way to, well, to the, to the variety of this experience. Um, yes. But, I mean, one thing that's striking about it, and you're really getting at that, is I mean, in the experience of depression, it's it, it was more clear to me than in any other experience in my life that that mind and body and spirit are connected, uh, yes, interconnected. Yes, and even exactly. when we talk about this as mental illness, we're missing the point somehow. Right, right. It's almost, and this is a, a real argument I have with with my field, the field of psychology. It almost becomes a way of dismissing it. Um, mm -hmm. 
it becomes a kind of epithet and it becomes a, a sort of, you know, we're on this side of the, the, the table and, and those people who are depressed are on the other side of the table. Um, I, I see it much, much more as, as a, um, oh, you know, kind of a minor key um, chord mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that is a constant accompaniment to one's life. I mean, I, I am... To any um, life? Um, to a, the life to of many a lives. Mm-hmm. I think to, to, well, I think to the life of a person who is inclined in that direction. Right. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, think, I think there are a lot of people who aren't um, inclined in that direction and, and who don't recognize that, who don't respond that way, who aren't drawn to certain kinds of, of um, uh, you know, quite literally minor key music or poetry mm-hmm. or, or, or um, that whole side of life. And, and even um, when I'm, I'm, you know, not at all depressed, I am continually aware of a permeable darkness just, just to the side of me. It's always there. Right. I mean, I think if you've yeah. experienced that, it's, it's part, it, it, it marks you. It's, mm-hmm. it's always mm-hmm. a possibility of yes, something you yes. know might come into your vision again or yes, that you might walk exactly. into again. Exactly. And sometimes very suddenly. I mean, um, there are moods. I remember once I was living in London in the early 1970s and I remember once sitting in the garden of the little flat that I was living in and and I was quite happy I was writing and and um, it was a windy day and you know how the weather can change very rapidly in in places like London very suddenly a cloud was blown across the sun um, and I suddenly experienced the most incredible fall in my spirits I just dropped into a black hole the minute that cloud came across the sun. And I was aware absolutely of how tenuous, how tenuous any, any state of mind, any state of spirit is so that this shadow of the cloud that fell across me changed my mood utterly at that moment. I, I want to ask you... Um, to think back through your experience of depression and how you've thought, how you've reflected on it since in terms of the soul and, you know, how your, all of the context of your religious and spiritual life came into that. But I'm just wondering as we're speaking now about this image of darkness and blackness. Mm, mm. <laughs> and you are a poet. And I mean, what, what does, does that have something to do with the soul or, or the feeling of the absence Oh, the feeling of spirit being crushed. Mm, mm, I think it takes on different forms. There are times, um, you know, Rilke says um, Rilke loved the darkness, um, and and there are many poems where he speaks about darkness um, in in a way that really. I think was what drew me mm-hmm. to these poems. Can I read? Yes, them? yes, um, yes. Ich liebe meines Wesens Dunkelstunden. I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. So I am sometimes like a tree rustling over a gravesite and making real the dream of the one its living roots embrace, a dream once lost among sorrows and songs. I love the dark hours of my being, mm-hmm. he says. I mean, I think, I think that there have been times certainly in my life when that darkness, that quiet, that sort of, um, you know, the depressed 
mood, I mean, it's such a terrible word, the dark mood. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a word it that is. has taken on so many rotten connotations, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's sort of a medical term now. So many simple, um, I want to redeem it. I want to redeem it from the medical and the clinical <laughs> um, and bring it into the realm of soul making as, as James Hillman does. I don't know if you know James Hillman's work. Uh, um, tell me that. Oh, you do? would love it. He's a he's a Jungian sort of derivative Jungian mm-hmm. analyst um, who writes. Um, he has a gorgeous essay called "The Veil of Soul Making." The veil, V A L E, of soul making, and he's talking about John Keats. Um, I think it's actually a phrase from one of Keats' mm. letters. Um, and he speaks about the importance of depression as a kind of ripening experience um, as a an experience of mature, you know, the Italian word, word for ripe is maturo. Um, it is a maturing experience in the sense that it grows one up mm-hmm. and it trims the edges of arrogance and it makes one humble. Um, and... Um, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, that, um, I mean, there are depressions that are so devastating, um, so devastating. There is a point in depression that is so devastating that only in retrospect would anyone want to say, well, I am glad I touched bottom because now I know what that is. Right. And (laughs) I mean, that's probably true for everyone who's been in a Real major I think depression, so. right? There's some exactly. moment where you could not imagine you could ever be grateful for oh, it. Oh, exactly. That it's so hideous and you're self, so self-enclosed at that moment that mm-hmm. there is no God, there is no spirit. And and um, I've known several people who committed suicide in one of those moments where, where the darkness just gripped them so totally that they couldn't imagine a way out. Um, but but this other kind of living with darkness, um, which which is so familiar to me, um, I think is is a very sort of spiritual place. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a kind of um, ripening that goes on in in that place, a quieting, a listening, um, a place of um, non-activity. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) isn't it? Well, and also a a loss of illusions about Mm -hmm. what activity will get you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, that's really, really true. Mm -hmm. That all you can do in that place is kind of sit, and listen and be and and um, be very simple. You know, he's, Rilke again says, um, be modest now like a thing ripened until it is real so that he who made you can find you when he reaches for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> mm. And it's really that. And earlier in that poem, which is which is um, one of the most gorgeous poems, I think, in, in the Book of Hours, it's the one that begins, you're not surprised by the force of the storm. You have seen it coming. Um, that, to me, is very, very much like the experience of, of, of a sort of ravaging depression. Can you read that one? Um, do you have yes, that? Yes, 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 I do. I want to um, tell you, I... Um I spent seven years in Germany, and and I oh. and I always read Rilke in German, and uh, oh my, his I I loved. I mean, I feel like the language in which he writes is his own. You know, it's not yes. it's not yes. anyone else's German. It's Rilke, and it is yes. so so beautiful, and it defies every stereotype of. Of, of how harsh that language can be, doesn't it? Oh. Exactly. Oh, it's exactly. just it's just exquisite. Yeah. And I and also having said that, I have never been able to read any English translation of him with mm. any joy until I found this <laughs> book of hours that you translated. Oh. Yeah, oh. and I have loved oh. giving it to people because oh. I never felt like I could give people Rilke the way I could read him in German. And I've given oh. this as gifts to so many people. 
So. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> anyway, That's right. wonderful. So, it's wonderful to know that oh, halfway across the country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> yes, yes. So this is Dich wundert nicht, der Sturm ist wucht. You are not surprised at the force of the storm. You have seen it growing. The trees flee. Their flight sets the boulevards streaming. And you know, he whom they flee is the one you move toward. All your senses sing him as you stand at the window. The weeks stood still in summer. The tree's blood rose. Now you feel it wants to sink back into the source of everything. You thought you could trust that power when you plucked the fruit. Now it becomes a riddle again, and you again, a stranger. Summer was like your house. You knew where each thing stood. Now you must go out into your heart as onto a vast plain. Now the immense loneliness begins. The days go numb. The wind sucks the world from your senses like withered leaves. Through the empty branches, the sky remains. It is what you have. Be earth now and even song. Be the ground lying under that sky. Be modest now, like a thing ripened until it is real, so that he who began it all can feel you when he reaches for you. Oh, that is so beautiful. Oh. <laughs> and that is the soul in depression, right? Yes, it is, absolutely. Summer was like your house. You knew where each thing stood. Now you must go out into your heart as onto a vast plain. Now the immense loneliness begins. Mm. And that's exactly it. I mean, suddenly in depression, you are ripped from what felt like your life, from what felt right and familiar and balanced and ordinary and ordered. And you're just thrown into this place where you're ravaged, where the wind rips the leaves from the trees, and 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 there you are, yeah, very very much, the soul in depression. Uh, and the the word stranger in there, which is I mean, yes. the, the the complete alienation not only from others but from yourself. Ah, oh, from oneself, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. That's the worst of it. That's the worst of it. I remember during the time when I was most deeply depressed after my first daughter was born, a friend said to me, you know what I do in depression? I, I go to the mirror maybe 50 times a day just to look at myself and, and, and see that I'm still really there. Mm-hmm. And I began doing that. I began trying to remind myself that I was who I had been. And, and it's that disorienting. I'm curious about what, um, how these various spiritual traditions and practices that have been part of your experience uh, may have worked for you or helped you, maybe not so much in the midst of depression, but mm-hmm. as you mm-hmm. later made sense of it. Yes, yes, What exactly. did you draw on t- for these deep kinds of insights? I think a number of things. What... what um, I found was not solacing was the image of the God which solaced my mother. Um, I, I couldn't believe in the daddy God on the end of the telephone line <laughs> um, whose favorite child I was. <laughs> um, that didn't work. I think what has worked for me more than anything has been the experience of interconnectedness, the experience of being modest now like a thing, um, the experience actually of not being very important but being held in the web of life. My, my dear, dear friend Joanna Macy, with whom I did this Roka translation, speaks a lot about the net of Indra. Um, about what? Indra. 
the net of Indra, mm. she calls it, Indra being a, a goddess. Um, and Indra's net spans the entire universe and it holds each sentient being. And every one of us is on a node in that net. And you know how if you move one little node or not in a net, the whole rest of it is affected. Um, Joanna Macy in her teaching likes to say, that is our true home, that net. Out of it, we cannot fall. That has helped me very much in these spiritual traditions, and it's in Judaism, certainly. Mystical Judaism certainly speaks about the oneness and the interconnectedness and, and the ways in which we are all um, a part of God. Um, every, every tradition that I have um, worked my way into <laughs> um, has really spoken to me of that, that sense in which um, all things are one, all things are held, all things are the same, and, and, um, and therefore that horrible experience of exile which I think is the essence of depression, exile and, and dreadful self-consciousness and self-enclosure, um, has been solaced by that practice of oneness, that practice of, of really trying to know the oneness. I wonder... Um, and I, I guess I'm asking you this question as a psychologist as well. Mm -hmm. um, if the practice of, of meditation and mindfulness, of going inside one's own mm -hmm. mind, at some point could be really frightening um, or, or, or even dangerous in the case of depression. Um, yes, yes, exactly. In fact, I'll tell you, when I am most ravaged, I cannot meditate. When I'm feeling most awful, I will go and practice my viola da gamba. Um, I will sit down and learn a little bit of Hindu or Serbo-Croatian grammar. <laughs> um, I'll do something very, very structured. I know myself well enough to know that in my deepest dark I absolutely cannot sit and meditate, that it would be the worst thing that I could do. And what I need to do is something very concrete and very structured, a task, a task so that I can get to the end of a Bach piece or, or a grammar exercise. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, yeah, go on, <laughs> go on. Yeah, I, I think also um, there are some meditation teachers who've spoken of this, Jack Cornfield from mm -hmm. Spirit Rock here being one, um, that meditation is not a psychological cure. Um, it's, not, it's not necessarily a good thing to do when, when you're not feeling psychologically in a, in a good place. Right. And yeah. that, that makes sense. I don't know. There's just this paradox here that's running through all the conversations I'm having about this subject and thinking, and you're bringing it up again, which is that, is that depression can be an experience of um, great, eventually can can yield maturity and and growth and a kind of mm -hmm. spiritual insight and a, a bigger soul um, yes. is the way some people might say it. But in the moment, in the depth of that experience, that is what is completely out of the question, that kind of reflection. I mean, what does yes, that mean? Exactly. What is this? Exactly. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, and I think that um, all of the talk about, oh, well, this will, you know, be really good for your soul yeah. or your character. Um, this will make a better person of you feels like absolute rubbish when you're in the midst of the wretchedness of depression. And I find as a psychologist that in sitting with somebody who is touching bottom in that way, um, it feels blasphemous to speak of ripening and, and spiritual growth. All, all, all 
you can do with somebody in that place is to sit with them in the darkness and to allow them to know that even though they can't feel it, um, on the other side of the wall, there's somebody who is willing to sit with them in it, who's not afraid or disgusted or, or driven away by it. Um, but I think that, that um, in a way, I mean, it almost feels sort of physiological. If the soul were, were um, material, hmm. um, I think depression sort of works on it the way the way you could work a piece of clay so that it softened and and um, it becomes more malleable it becomes wider um, it becomes able to take in more um, but that's only afterward in the fire what you get is, the fire. The fire, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that, yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. I have a poem about fire. Good. Which I, All I, right. I, I well, I was like just going to suggest that own. maybe now I'd just love to hear you read some more. And... Oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I'll, read, I'll read you a poem of okay. mine. This is from a manuscript um, that I'm in the process of, of um, sending out. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the manuscript is called We Are the Hunger. Um, and this is a poem called Questo Muro. And I'll tell you the situation um, in the poem. Um, it is a phrase from um, a passage in Dante's Purgatory. Um, Dante is going up the mountain of Purgatory with Virgil. And, you know, the whole of the experience of the, the divine comedy is a journey toward um, Beatrice, um, who is, you know, you could call her the soul or the anima. Mm. Um, and Dante has been in the depths of depression, in the depths of the inferno. And he's now working his way out of it toward Beatrice. And he and Virgil are climbing the mountain, and all of a sudden they get to a wall of fire. Um, and you can't go any further unless you go through it. Um, and so I'll read you the little passage in Italian. Quando mi vide star pur fermo e duro, turbato un poco, disse, Or vedi, figlio, tra Beatrice e te, e questo muro. Um, and, and the translation would be something like, when he, Virgil, saw me standing there without moving, he was a bit disturbed, and he said, now look, son, between Beatrice and you, there is this wall. So this is my poem, and, and it really is a poem, I think, about um, finding the courage, finding the courage to persist, to go through that fire. Questo muro. You will come at a turning of the trail to a wall of flame. After the hard climb and the exhausted dreaming, you will come to a place where he with whom you have walked this far will stop, will stand beside you on the treacherous steep path and stare as you shiver at the moving wall the flame that blocks your vision of what comes after. And that one who you thought would accompany you always, who, oh, I just lost it here. Yeah, it's um, okay. Move, start, you can yeah, start so over. We can, we can edit Yeah, it. we okay, can edit. Start, yeah. start where you again. feel comfortable. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's it is. It's a, it's a wonderful freedom, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the page just yeah. flew apart. Um, Okay, you will come at a turning of the trail to a wall of flame. After the hard climb and the exhausted dreaming, you will come to a place where he with whom you have walked this far will stop, will stand beside you on the treacherous steep path and stare as you shiver at the moving wall, the flame that blocks your vision of what comes after. And that one who you thought would accompany you always, who held your face tenderly a little while in his hands, who pressed the palms of his hands into drenched grass and washed from your cheeks the soot, the tear tracks. He is telling you now that all that stands between you and everything you have known since the beginning is this, this wall. 
between yourself and the beloved, between yourself and your joy, the riverbank swaying with wildflowers, the shaft of sunlight on the rock, the song. Will you pass through it now? Will you let it consume whatever solidness this is you call your life and send you out a tremor of heat, a radiance, a changed, flickering thing? Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is that experience, and I think I think you know that that um, that's the ripening. I mean, the flame, the crucible in mm -hmm. which the soul is formed. But there is absolutely no denying that it's terrifying. Who wants to go through a wall of flame? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know, why not walk around it? <laughs> yeah. Why not turn back? It was nice enough. Nice walk. Right. I'm going home now. Right. Thank you very much. <laughs> I guess Beatrice wasn't that important. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <sighs> did did you bring any other things that you'd like to read? Um, I did. I mean, I did. I'm happy with what you've done, but if I'm also <laughs> happy to hear some more. Yes. Um let me um, see if I can can read another poem or two of mine, if that's all right. Yes. Maybe maybe sure. one more of the Rilke. Sure. Um, here's a poem that that comes from um, depression. Uh, it's called Heartwork, um, and you might recognize the the. Um, Title. It's a translation of, of a word. It's a, one of those great made-up German words that, that Rilke <laughs> yeah. um, had. Yeah. Um, he says, Werk des Gesichts ist getan, tue nun Herzwerk. The work of seeing is done, now do the work of the heart. So, um, yeah, I love um, that one. I know that one. Yeah, Read it. I love that too. Mm -hmm. And the, the person named Viva in this poem is my younger daughter. Heartwork. Monday, bronze sunlight on the worn gray rug in the dining room where Viva sits playing her recorder. Pain ripened sunlight, I nearly wrote. Like the huge vine ripened tomato my friend brought yesterday from her garden to add to our salad. Meaning what comes in its time to its own end, then breaks off easily needing no more from summer. The notes of some medieval dance spill gracefully from the stream of Viva's breath. Something that had been stopped is beginning to move. A leaf driven against rock by a current frees itself, finds its way again through moving water. The angle of light is low, but still it fills this space we're in. What interrupts me is sometimes an abundance. My sorrow, too, which grew large through summer, feels to me this morning as though if I touched it where the thick, dark stem of it is joined to the root, it would release itself whole. It would be something I could use. It's, it's really a poem about coming out, you know, kind mm -hmm. of, kind of, you know, being at the end of that moment of darkness, long moment, sometimes short moment, others, but, but, kind of coming to the end and 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 seeing, oh, you know, it it can release itself now, like the tomato that drops from the stem when it's ripe enough. Um, it can be something I could use it, it use in the sense not only of making poetry or music from it um, but but weave it back into the fabric of the soul I'm also thinking that it's <clears throat> this is quite a gift to to be able to write poetry in and out of that experience although I suppose mm -hmm. it could also it could also take you there so powerfully that, that could be yes. dangerous. 
Oh, it can, it can, and 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 the failures of poetry too. I mean, not just the the. Um, you know that frustration of not being able to get what you want to say on the page, but mm. but long moments of drought, where where you know the fear is that you'll never write again. I mean, it's 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 a dreadful thing that that I certainly live with, and and that many writers I know live with, um, and and yet it is also um, such a. a um, such a what? It's not catharsis exactly, um, but but there is something deeply satisfying about being able to use what is in me and to to um, to bring it out of me in some form. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I didn't have poetry. Um, I might not have survived my childhood and my adolescence in any way that would have been whole. Either my soul would have been broken, or, or, or you know, I, I, um, I might not have physically survived. I might have found a way out. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you have another one you'd like to read me? I do. Yeah. Um, let's see if I can find it. It's so great to have have, <laughs> have long um, long. I'm a captive audience. You can edit out. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Oh, great. Okay. Um, I'll read um, two more. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Um, somebody knocked on this door a little while ago. Well, I thought I heard that. That's so why I was getting serious. worried that we're uh, yeah. that. Um, yeah. I, I that they may need the studio. Um, well, it's five past um, six. I don't know. Five past six. <clears throat> Sorry, my time. So five past four. Oh, okay. Five past four, my mm-hmm. time. Okay. Shall I read just this one last one? Yeah, well, um, if, um, unless they, I mean, go ahead and read. Unless they really, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. They may, yeah. they may. the studio could be booked for something else, but I would think they would right. have knocked again. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I hear someone. Worth, here's someone. There's someone talking. There is someone there. It's booked uh, very shortly. It's booked very shortly. Okay, I'm going to read one more poem. Is that all right? Or should I? Yeah, okay, okay great. Um, this one is, is called Before the Ending. Um, and it's, it's really, um, oh, it's about loving the world while we can. Um, and, and I think also about this historical moment that we're living in, which is a very, very dark time. Um, and I, I'm very aware of that, and a lot of my work is really addressed to that. Um, Before the ending, later when we think back to this time, we will say we did not look long enough at the moth-like insects swirling at noon under the branches of the redwood, flaxen wings catching the sun. We will say we did not practice one another's languages. We did not learn to listen beyond the noises we made for the small, insistent stirrings of those who wanted us to know them. We lived arguing and imagining. We thought our lives were separable from the life of the cornstalk, the many-eyed blue bottle. How will we explain this? Who will be there to hear us? We staggered between our confusion and our hunger. If mountains stood in our way, we blasted through them. We traversed the breathing grass on roads we believed in. Now and then we were pierced by a startling immensity. Will anyone ask us? Will we ask ourselves why we did not sit patiently enough, quietly speaking together or in silence, watching the shifting mosaic of leaf shadow on leaf, stroking the dog's broad silken head, gathering what abundance there is, the grass bleached in places but strewn with fallen plums, tasting the sweetness still with us, to be tasted. Thank you so much. 
Oh, Krista, this has been a delight. Yeah, isn't <laughs> it amazing really how intimate this can be? This it's kind incredible. of com- yeah, it is incredible. I, I know you have headphones totally on, right? There's something. Yeah, it's not like being on the it's, telephone. There, it's like exactly. you're in inside each other's heads. I, I exactly. absolutely it's love doing it. Unbelievably yeah. intimate. Yeah. I love it. It's yeah. wonderful. Good. Well, I would love to meet you sometime. <laughs> well, I would love to meet you too. And uh, yes. where are, are you in Berkeley? Or in, I'm in Berkeley. Yes. Yeah, I can email you my address. And okay, we'll do that because I'll I'll be out there at some point. Oh, and, uh, please! And I will and send you a CD, and uh, we'll stay in touch. And you know, yes, we, please let's okay. do. I, okay, yes, I've really enjoyed this tremendously. Great. Your questions were wonderful. Very, oh, good. Well, it very, was really delightful. Uh, Oh, thank you. Do you know when it'll be broadcast? Uh, I think we're going to be, well, what we do, we're doing a monthly program right now. We'll be going weekly in April. We will be sending uh-huh. this out to the public radio system in the, in, f- in January or February. Now, uh-huh. it's possible that it will probably be around for a long time. So it uh-huh. it might be aired, you know, a year from now in some places. Right. And uh, right. it'll so be it that kind of be program. So it might be aired on KQED. Well, yeah. they, KQED uh. carries all our shows. So they will oh, be fabulous. airing it. So I'll try to find out oh, when. Yes, yeah. yeah. Great, great, fabulous. Okay, yeah, I would love to know when it'll happen. Okay. Yeah, keep me in touch. All right. Thank you so much. You too. Yes, you too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye.